maximize your influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 81 of Maximize Your Influence. Steve Olson here with Kurt Mortensen, who has finally decided to grace us with his presence here in the Persuasion IQ studio. He's been busy out conquering the world the last couple of weeks, and we've had to put up with him on the phone. But you know what? Kurt's got good info, and Kurt on the phone is certainly better than no Kurt. Now that I've laid out the red carpet for you, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is quite the red carpet. It's good to be sitting in my own office, lazy boy. Going through the studio and a better quality call, so it's good to be around. And I'm, although feeling a little sluggish because for some strange reason everybody was celebrating Pi Day, and not that I knew that existed till a few years ago, but Pi is good. But that was a lot of Pi. That's a the thing that everybody's doing now. I don't think this started happening until a few years ago. Where whatever month and day it is, is that some significant number? And can we make it an excuse to celebrate and eat a bunch of food and not do anything? <laughs> Pie day? Uh, That's the first time I heard of that. I'd heard about it before, but this year was really big. In fact, my daughter on Saturday morning had a fundraiser for, I think it was children in India, and they had a 5K. We like to do, we did our 5K, and after the 5K, we all ate pie, which I thought was kind of strange after burning all those calories and getting doubling and tripling it. But anyway, that's what they did. It was kind of odd for to eat pie pie after after exercising. What are you teaching the kids? Yeah, okay. Well, Kurt, if you're going to eat the pie, would there be a better time to do it? That's probably true. So yeah. now I only get 50% of those calories instead of the full 100%. Yeah, we, we just have to assume the fact that the pie is going to be eaten, so pick the best time to eat it, which they did. So They did. Okay, all right. Kudos to them, then. I guess they thought it through. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, it's arguable whether we know what we're talking about most of the time. But Pi Day, March 14th, so 3.14, the mathematical calculation for Pi, or the formula, rather. And then just go ahead and make it about Pi, the dessert, instead. And that's how we got here. What a stretch. Yeah. Someone made it. Another holiday. Next thing we'll have to do doing Pi greeting cards, but we'll see how far that goes. Look, you know what, America? You don't need an excuse to eat pie. You eat plenty of pie anyways and try to hide it. Don't try to bring it out in the open. Just eat the pie. No shame. There you go. No yeah. shame. Have fun. Enjoy it. You have our permission. <laughs> exactly. These internet sensations, they they sweep over us. There was one a couple of weeks ago that had my wife and I just incensed. It was a picture of this dress that went around on Instagram and Facebook and it was clearly a white and gold dress, and it the whole joke was it broke the internet because a few people were saying, no, it's black and blue or something, some stupid color, right? And it, my Facebook and my Instagram got totally lit up with it, and my wife and I were at my dad's house just chatting with him, and we're going, this is so stupid. Who would think this? And so we show my dad as a point of, duh, and he says, no, it's black and blue. And then, of course, we got so mad. It's not black and blue. It just, I mean, people were getting divorced over this. It's crazy. <laughs> If you know what I'm talking about, listeners, then then you're really angry right now. You're tightly gripping the steering wheel. And if you don't, then you're going, this guy's crazy. He's making up nonsense, which how would that be any different than the usual? So, you know, there you go. So welcome once again. Why don't we get on topic here? Welcome to episode 81 of Maximize Your Influence. And I'll do the customary reminder at the beginning of the episode today. Subscribe on the iTunes store. It helps us a lot when you do that. 
You just open up iTunes, type in Maximize Your Influence, and you'll see our podcast there. Click the podcast, and there's a little button that says subscribe. So that way, whenever we release a new episode, it automatically downloads to your phone or your iPad or whatever you choose to listen on. You can listen to the episodes as well by going to MaximizeYourInfluence.com. We post them there. It shows the two most current episodes always, but you can click see all episodes and see just about everything that we've ever done until, of course, we make that part of the premium section of universityofpersuasion.com, which you should go visit because we have tons of different options there for cranking your persuasion skills up through the roof. So please tell your friends, go to universitypersuasion.com to see how we can help you further. Shameless plug over. Good. I liked it. Good. All right. So why don't we get on with it today? We've got an article, and I hijacked the geeky article moment from you today, and we'll get into some of the persuasion IQ question cheat sheet stuff, and then we've got a ninja. So get your hand on that ninja button. Be ready to go, okay? I got it. All right. It's there. It's there. We can proceed. So... There was a recent article done by the Harvard Business Review. Cue the Urkel. Urkel, go. (laughs) (laughs) Connect with any audience. Now, many of you have probably seen a speaker get up in front of an audience, whether it's 10 people or a couple of thousand, and seen them bomb spectacularly. It's the kind of thing where you just can't look away. Right. And it's because they failed to connect with the audience. They didn't do the time tested steps of what you need to do to be able to make that happen. It's always good to review. It's always good to hear different people's perspective on it. This one coming, of course, from Harvard Business Review, and we will post a link to it on the blog. They gave five tips and then one little kind of bonus tip that I might disagree with, Kurt. I want to see what you have to say about that. So we'll get there. But Tip number one, and if you've got a drum roll button, Kurt, it's time to probably hit that one too, but we'll let it slide if not. So number one, this is a no-brainer, but I think persuaders get sloppy. They assume that they know everything. Number one is you have to get to know your audience ahead of time. Non-negotiable. Would you agree? I agree. Adapt your audience. As we say, same potatoes. you got to change the gravy. You know who your opinion leaders are, who your hecklers are before you even start. Right. It's kind of an extreme example, but we all know that Kurt recently went to the Middle East to Dubai. If you just got up there and let it rip like you were in New York City, that would not have been a good thing. Yeah, I would have been thrown out. Probably arrested. <laughs> yeah, probably so. You'd be in a in a Saudi prison somewhere, which is not a good place. So you got to get to know the audience ahead of time. They have certain persuasions. They have certain beliefs and values and attitudes. So you've got to be able to steer clear of that stuff or hammer it home, whatever is, is most appropriate. Number two, let's see if Kurt agrees or disagrees. Define how you want to change your audience, or in other words, what are they supposed to do when you're done talking? What do you think? I didn't really like the wording of that. I mean, no one likes to be changed, but if you come up with your call to action, the main thing you want them to do, I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't like the wording either, but the premise is the same. What are you hoping to accomplish? The funny thing is, you know the people that are most guilty of violating this rule? I found that the more educated they are, the more guilty they are of it because their mind is in this academia all the time and they just kind of assume that everybody knows what they're talking about. And so they get up there and they spew a bunch of facts and numbers and everybody's going, that's fine and dandy. What what do I do now? Does that make sense? Yeah, it happens quite a bit, especially those analytical types like the PowerPoint to be perfect and all the data and all the statistics where they're not really understanding the change, the emotional, the persuasion side. 
It's just a great data dump that they love to t- hear about, but no one else did. Right. You know, Bill Clinton, who is a master, whatever you think about the guy, he is a master. And he had that campaign slogan of keep it simple, stupid. And it just applies in, in so many ways. So number three, let's see if Kurt agrees or disagrees. Find common ground. Duh. Yeah, duh, agree. <laughs> Especially if you're persuading, you find the one thing you're going to persuade about and then find common ground with everything else. It makes it much easier. Is there any merit to that? I've seen that the fact that most persuaders and public speakers, they, they want to find that common ground. I found that some of them benefit by being up on a pedestal and, and you know, maybe I'm not like you Colin people. I'm a, a big expert or maybe I'm a, a president of a country or something. Is there ever, ever an instance where not having the common ground and being more of a, I don't want to call it holier than now, but I, I'm just a, an untouchable expert is beneficial? I can see that at times. I think if you start off with the expert, you know what they need to know. You can solve their problems, but then you come back down to their level. Hey, I was once like you. I was broke too. I was overweight too. Then you come back up. This is the solution. I can see that working. So, okay. You know, you've, you've got to be relatable no matter what. Is mm-hmm. the, okay. Okay. Number four, and this is four out of five, so you see a light at the end of the tunnel. Okay. Number four is lose the jargon. You've got to use very simple methods of speech. Typically, the only time you want to use any kind of jargon is if you obeyed rule number one here and you're speaking to a very specialized audience that you would have no reason ever to suspect that they wouldn't know the jargon that you're talking about. Uh, What do you think? I agree with that. Yeah, you got to be careful with that. Confused mind says no. And if you start throwing things around trying to pretend to be smart, they're going to rebel on you. Yeah, this, this one is hard for me because I spend my days with you know one foot in the whole jargon working with other professionals in my field where it's very efficient to speak that way to each other but then the next second I could be in front of a prospect who is totally uneducated and doesn't know anything needs to have very basic terminology so I've got to be able to shift those gears and I think most people are like that you're dealing with your peers in the office or whatever there's jargon but when those prospects get involved you got to be able to flip that switch absolutely number 5 let's see if Kurt agrees you have to anticipate resistance. You have to put yourself in the audience's shoes. How are they going to feel? How are they going to resist? I think it's in most people's nature to want to resist a little bit, and you got to get out in front of that. What do you think? I agree. You want to pre-solve the resistance if it's going to come up. I'd, I'd add something to that. Pre-solve any questions that you think are going to come up, but then you got to be careful there. That's a slippery slope. If you start pre-solving, anticipating the wrong resistance and create this large presentation around resistance that doesn't exist, they're going to be more resistant. How's that? Right, right. You can't present too much of it. You can't say, hey, you know what? This guy's going to get hit in the head with a sledgehammer. I need to prepare him for it and hit him in the head with a sledgehammer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's a a little bit uh, catastrophic. Inoculation or preparing for objections is subtle. It has to be very subtle. Okay. Well, good. So you ready for the point that I disagreed with, Kurt? Yeah, give it to me. So... And it's kind of along the lines of, you know, we're getting these people to do something. And when we talk about anticipating resistance, I can't remember who it was, but you told me about a a high-flying seminar platform sales guy that would say at the beginning of his presentation, how many of you think I'm here to sell you something? And everybody would raise their hand and he would say, well, you won't be disappointed, right? That's right. So he would diffuse that, that tension right away. Say, hey, it's coming. Relax. Now just listen to me, Right. And, and on the opposite side of it, this author says that you always should do a Q&A whenever you're speaking to 
a big audience. And my thought was, I don't know, sometimes that can really let all the energy out of the room when you spend all this time building the emotion, getting to your call to action, and then people get to ask you stupid questions for 15 minutes and, and just suck all the energy out of the room. What do you think about this? Yeah, I'm, I'm doubling down on that one. Highly disagree for a couple reasons. You're right. It does suck the energy out of the room. You lose control of the audience. You have a heckler out there that might make you look bad. And if you want them to do something, if you were working with a charity and you want them to go to the back and to donate or help out or purchase your products, it has to be done at the very end of your presentation. They're excited. The emotion's the highest. They've been persuaded. If you do anything in between getting them to the back of the room and doing what you want them to do and taking questions, man, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot every time. Would a better way to handle it, because I can see some of her point of you want to be transparent and look like you care about the questions and things, but wouldn't it be better to pack like a frequently asked questions segment in somewhere in the middle and say, hey, here are a few of the questions I get most of. And then, so that kind of solves that issue, but then you get back to building the emotion so that you can control your call to action. Yeah, do it before or even after your call to action. Maybe come back after lunch to do a little Q&A and answer some more questions, get a few more sales or persuade a few more people might be a way to do it also. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a struggle because you do want people, in some of these prospects, it's very highly educated or a long sales cycle, and, and it's all about trust and answering the questions. But, man, it sure can kill the energy. So Careful with that one. That's careful. all I have to say. Yeah, okay. There you go. Specific advice. Be careful. Yeah, there you go. Write that down. <laughs> okay, cool. So let's move on to the main section of the show. If you go to MaximizeYourInfluence.com, scroll to the bottom, you'll see the Persuasion IQ test. You can take it and see how good of a persuader you are. We've been giving you the cheat sheet the last few episodes and answering some of these questions for you. This week, the question is, multiple choice, people who are in a good mood, A, buy more, B, listen better, C, see the positive over the negative, D, give better evaluations, or E, all of the above. Kurt, what do you think? The answer would be E, all of the above. Mood matters with persuasion. The research has been astounding showing that mood does all those things from buying more to listening better to feeling more positive to seeing the positive versus getting better evaluations. Mood is huge. That's right. That's right. So do we have any control over this? I mean, there's so many things happening in these people's lives. How are you to know if uh, you know, on the way into the office that morning they got served with divorce papers and they're in a rotten mood? I mean, you have no control over that. You have no control. Now, in the workplace, you might be able to reschedule an appointment if you can tell they're in a foul mood. But if something like that happened as a persuader, you need to be able to read that person, know it's the wrong time, and two things. You're either rescheduling or you've got to work on their mood. You've got to change them up because when people are in a negative mood, they're going to call negative things, why they don't like you, why it won't work, versus people in a positive mood, they're going to talk about why they like you, why it's going to work, why it's going to help them. It's two different scenarios, and you have to be able to read that situation. Okay, so riddle me this. You meet with a prospect, you, you get the meeting, it's obvious they're in a foul mood. Their tone is short with you. You can tell something is going on. We make a couple of efforts to bring them into a good mood, and then do we retreat if it's unsuccessful? I mean, what's what's the, the plan here? What do you do? Yeah, there's a variety of things you can do. Humor, depending on the situation and their personality, can work very well. Maybe create the common enemy. If you'd been through a divorce, too, maybe have that com not common enemy and, and talk it through. Get the feelings out. Maybe go for a walk, get some food a sweet treat, 
boost their ego or esteem. There are a variety of things you could do to change their mood up. But if you just go right into persuasion when they're in a foul mood, it will backfire on you every time. So humor, empathy, get them to talk about it for a while. Is there some body language? Is there something that we could observe to see, you know, this mood is clearly transitioning. It's getting better. Maybe I do have the green light to persuade instead of just being forced to reschedule here. Their face will be less sour. How's that for a scientific term? Their very, body very language will open up yeah. more. You'll see less stress, more of a smile, more of a connection. You'll see those things type of happen. You'll see their body take up more space. Sometimes when we're in a sour mood, we tend to crouch a little bit more. We, we kind of get our feet underneath our chair. So being able to read that is a big part of it and understanding what you can do to boost that mood. But here's something a lot of people don't even think about. When we talk about mood, your mood matters too. If you just got served those papers or you just had a bad day or you just got to do a dig in your car, you just fought with your spouse and you put on that fake smile pretending everything's okay, they're going to sense that. They're going to feel it. They're not going to think, oh, yep, they just fought with their spouse. That's not what's happening. It's just that subconscious trigger. Something's uneasy. Something's not right. There's not that connection there. So I've noticed with really great persuaders, they can take a few moments, get back into gear, adjust their mood, get on track. It's worth a minute or two to do that before you go into a persuasive situation. Otherwise, it's going to be the same type of a scenario with the bad mood. What about the flip side? Can you be in too good of a mood? Is that going to backfire? <laughs> Yeah, I would say yes on that one. If you're not mirror and matching their mood and they're not the type of person that's enthusiastic or how about gleeful, <laughs> that's the word. If they're not in that mind and you're way up there in the stars and they're way down in the mud, you're going to need to mirror and match a little bit and slowly bring them up. But you could be way out there if you're not mirror and matching their mood initially. That's the right way to think of it. Yeah, mirroring and matching because for some people, they're most excited is what your level five out of 10 is, right? You're, you're excited as a 10 out of 10. And if they max it all out, it, you know, it's a horsepower thing, right? <laughs> the, the uh, little hybrid car pedal to the metal is not going to be super fast compared to the Corvette. So that's definitely something to consider. Anything else that we should be aware of when it comes to mood? Just big picture. Remember, good mood, they're thinking good thoughts, why they like you, bad mood, the exact opposite happens. And so you need to be able to read that and understand how that works. Even in a simple study that was done at a restaurant to evaluate food, where people all got the same food, but was that negative, foul person at the table that was putting everybody into a bad mood, nobody was liking that person, that affected the food evaluations. And it's true in any aspect. In a meeting, is it going south? Or a presentation, is it going south? What is the mood in the room? So it's not just the one person, the mood in the room, the mood and around the conference table, the mood with the family. It goes a long way. So if you can come up with, like we mentioned, music or a good snack or being creative or boosting their esteem or offering some chocolate, anything you can do to adjust that, even talking about it, creating that common enemy we talked about, those are all things that really help. So the big picture is your mood matters. You've got to be able to read their mood. If they're in the foul mood, you need to pick it up a little bit. Then they're in the right state of mind to be very persuasive. I've tried something a few times over the years, and I probably bat about 70% on this, all right? Because if it fails, it, it's not great. <laughs> Imagine you meet this prospect, they're in a grumpy mood, they're deliberately being a, a little bit difficult in some cases, and you've got to make a decision of, okay, this might not go anywhere, so here's my Hail Mary. And I've just kind of stopped and looked at him before and I said, how's it going today? 
and and that kind of stops the flow of the presentation if there was any with a prospect in a bad mood, right? And and they just probably seven out of ten times they can sense that I'm picking up the vibe, and they'll say, "Yeah, I just got some bad news about something," and and then they start telling you. And I will tell you, it is a world of a difference when they're bottling it up and they don't want to talk about it. You're the one that's getting all that negative blowback. But if you can get them to talk about it, it changes things. But if they're in a really bad mood, I did have it once. How you doing? Well, you know what? Just get on with it. Right? He wasn't happy that I asked the question. So you are taking that risk. But it's it's debatable as to whether it was going anywhere in the first place. So something to think about. Yeah, well, letting that steam out, being empathetic, talking about it, getting the blood back in their brain. There's a lot of things you can do because in that foul mood... They're blaming you. They're blaming your product. They're, it's not going to work out. Why am I here? Man, that's so hard to persuade in that type of environment. Yep. Retreat. Retreat. <laughs> that's yeah, right. Some kind of retreat sound effect. Okay, good. So let's move off of the Persuasion IQ question regarding mood for now, and let's queue up the ninja. Ooh, all right. Ninja, go. <laughs> Listen to how excited Kurt got, because that ninja <laughs> sound effect is pretty cool. Yeah, that's good. And in uh, today's world, we don't get to use it nearly enough. And you'll be surprised to hear who is going to get the ninja because we have made fun of them on many occasions. No, it's not a an attorney or something like that. It is the the much blundered Delta Airlines, who Kurt and I both fly a lot. Therefore, we're always we always have something to say. <laughs> Talk about mood mattering. Usually, they're the catalyst for a negative mood for us, but. Yeah. I've noticed something. I've been flying them a lot lately. And any of you that have flown know that when you're taxiing away from the gate, federal law, and I think internationally, most places have to do this as well. They've got to go through a safety presentation about the airplane. Here are your exits. Here's how you use the life raft. Here's what you do if we lose oxygen, right? It's been notoriously boring for like the last 30 years, right? We all had the speech memorized. Nobody would look at them. Nobody would make eye contact. It was just terrible, and we just thought, yeah, I know what to do. I don't have to listen. Well, recently, Delta's been upgrading a lot of their planes. You're probably noticing more personal uh, personal TVs on the back of the seats and everything, and they'll show a video for the safety presentation instead, and they've got probably, I've noticed, three or four of these videos going around, and they're really funny. They've, they've made a conscious effort to make the video funny and catch people's attention. And I've been watching people's body language as they watch the video now. Almost everybody is watching it. They're commenting to people around them. Oh, that was so funny. Did you see that guy? And they've done a fantastic job at getting people to pay attention to something that previously they just did not give a royal you-know-what about. It's a major feature of the flight. Have you seen one of these yet, Kurt? Oh, yeah, I've seen a couple of them, and they are good. There's humor, and people are more engaged, and that goes right along with the mood that we talked about. People are stressed on planes, boarding process, people have the fear of flying, getting there on time. There's a flight delay. There's so many things happening. Just to, But for them to take a moment to watch the safety presentation, which is important, but a little laugh, a little smile, you can feel the mood in the plane just change a little bit. So right on, Ninja to Delta for doing that, taking the time. I'm sure it's a little more expensive to do that. I know they change them out quite a bit, but it's fun for the passenger. It changes the mood, and it deserves the Ninja. It does. It does. Southwest has tried this for a long time, try to lighten the mood on these bureaucratic things, these regulatory things that every airline has to do. And Delta finally clued in that, hey, 
make it fun, change it up a little bit because they get it. Mood matters, right? Let's get these people in a little bit better of a mood. They already felt like they were herded onto the plane like cattle and they're squeezed into a little sardine can of a seat and they've got a really crappy snack coming their way while, you know, somebody two rows up passes gas, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the experience that it used to be. So we've got to do everything we can to enhance that mood. I agree. And they're doing a good job with that, especially in a stressful cattle driven situation. They've changed it up quite a bit. Yeah. I have an idea for an invention and, and we're getting way off the rails here, which we have a tendency to do, but I was on a flight the other day and somebody, the gas that they passed was just criminal. (laughs) It was just criminal. And I thought if you could, you know, get some kind of a heat map detector and and get pretty close because that person, they just needed to be outed. What they did to us on that plane (laughs) was criminal. So, so you're going to invent little detectors in the seat where a little flag comes up, ding, 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 little flag comes up. It's me. It's me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to even try to verbally package this Kurt, but essentially what we're talking about here is a fart detector. Okay. (laughs) There you go. There it is. All right. Get on that. Have your people go invent that and we'll, we'll install it in the seats of the plane. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to be the infomercial uh, pitch man? You want to be the guy? Sure. (laughs) That'll help my credibility. (laughs) (laughs) As as if being an infomercial pitch man wasn't bad enough, but for the fart detector, that's going to be bad. (laughs) Yeah. As we go down this long, bad tangent. (laughs) It's terrible. And we've probably added, um, you know, prudish people to our list of people that we've offended. People that can't put up. We've now offended the gassy people. So now we just. (laughs) Yeah. Anybody with chronic gas. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to find you. We're going to know who you are soon. How's that make you feel? All right. Everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, if you hung on this long to the end of my idea, then wow, you are dedicated and we appreciate it. Like I said, MaximizeYourInfluence.com is the website. If you have ninjas you want to nominate, uh, blunders, ideas, comments, suggestions, or insults, send them to MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. We will catch you next week on another episode of Maximize Your Influence. All right, see you next week. 